Our passage this morning, our reading from God's Word is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 through chapter 2, verse 3. If you'd like to follow along in the Bibles there in your seats, that should be page 1014. Peter writes to the elect exiles of the dispersion, Christians who are suffering alienation and a feeling of distanciation because of the faith that they have, which is distinct from those around them, likely those whom they've been moved to be among. And being far from home and being different, they are suffering. Peter writes for their encouragement and for their instruction. So let us hear what God has said through his servant Peter to the churches, what God has to say to us this morning. 1 Peter 1.22-2.3 Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all is glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice, and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for this day, a day of rest and worship. It is a day when in stopping and being together, we meet you in your word. We meet you together in your word to hear the truth of who you are and what you have done and what that means for us to follow in obedience, to be transformed by the gospel. Gracious God, I pray that I would speak your word faithfully, that all that falls short would be quickly forgotten, blowing away like chaff, but all that is true and all that you have for your people will be deeply implanted in our hearts for your glory. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So Friday was St. Patrick's Day. And for many Christians who know the story and history of St. Patrick, we might resist all the earthly uh, worldly ways of celebrating and remember that he was a man of prayer and service, a man of missions who, though captured by those who we acknowledge today as Ireland, uh, though he was from England, went back to serve them and promote the gospel to see God's hand at work. Some of us might know St. Uh, Patrick's breastplate, a, a prayer, an invocation of God's presence before and around and behind. And it's a beautiful prayer. Less of us know some of his other works, but we have some of his other writings available. And I want to read from his letter to the soldiers of Caroticus. Because as I think you'll hear in Patrick's words, he dealt with some of the same issues that we deal with today and that the churches Peter spoke to dealt with as well. First, his opening. I declare that I, Patrick an unlearned sinner indeed, 
have been established a bishop in Ireland. I hold quite certainly that what I am, I have accepted from God. I live as an alien among non-Roman peoples, an exile on account of the love of God. He is my witness that this is so. That's his introduction. Then later in the letter, he writes this, the Christians of Roman Gaul have the custom of sending holy and chosen men to the Franks and to the other pagan peoples with so many thousands of money to buy back the baptized who have been taken prisoner. You, on the other hand, kill them and sell them to foreign peoples who have no knowledge of God. You hand over the members of Christ, as it were, to a brothel. What hope have you in God? Who approves of what you do or whoever speaks words of praise? God will be the judge. For it is written, not only the doers of evil, but also those who go along with it are to be condemned. St. Patrick writes these words because as he is ministering in Ireland, Caroticus, who is a chieftain, a kind of minor king, who is a baptized Christian, is allowing his soldiers to go on indiscriminate raids into Ireland, and they are killing fellow Christians from among the Irish. In another part of the letter, he describes how there are those who still bear the marks of them going through the baptismal ceremony on their bodies as they lie dead from the swords of fellow Christians who only see them as Irish instead of brothers and sisters. And those that they don't put to death, they sell into captivity. Patrick, who is in exile, who is an Englishman, as it were, among the Irish, calls out Caroticus and his soldiers for treating brothers and sisters in Christ who share the same baptism as aliens and foreigners. Peter and Patrick, they're dealing with different contexts, different situations, but the same call to love. Caroticus and his men who claimed Christ, who said they were Christians, were treating their brothers and sisters as objects of contempt, as objects to be sold, as ways to enrich themselves instead of brothers and sisters they were called first and foremost to love. And while there's no indication that, that such difficult and frankly outrageous circumstances are happening among the churches to whom Peter writes, he is concerned for the same thing. That they might be tempted to view their holy status, being called those who are saved, those in Christ, as sufficient, instead of to see that salvation has a purpose, <coughs> that salvation is not just a status marker, but it's a way of life we are called to and enabled to live, that the salvation of Christ is transformative with the fruit of love. <coughs> Excuse me. This is what the elect exiles to whom Peter writes are called to remember, the gospel call to love one another earnestly. To love others, yes, their enemies and their neighbors around them, but to start with the love for one another in the midst of exile. They need that call. 
They need that reminder. They need that refreshment that their salvation, they're being set apart, being holy because they've received the good news of the gospel, should bear the fruit of love because exile is a hard place to love. Because they're not at home. They don't feel at home. Just think of what it's like as you are traveling on a long car trip. Or you're in the airport waiting to catch a flight that might be delayed. I imagine, and if you're hopefully honest with yourself, that you probably have a higher frequency of arguments and fights with loved ones in the context of traveling on a long-distance car ride or in the airport. Because you're not at home. You're not in control. You feel out of control. And so that anxiety, that tension, often wells up in a need to protect or preserve ourselves, to feel in control. And so often, those who are on the journey with us, we begin to treat <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> as enemies and difficult people. I have a cough drop. It's not working. When you add to it, not only that you're not at home, but when you begin to add overt suffering, then comes the temptation to self-preservation, to self-promotion, and self-sufficiency. And if life were just suffering and life was being homeless, then love, as God calls us to, would seem secondary and kind of trivial. But in Christ, we're not living for mere survival but we're living in the assurance of eternal life, of an eternal home, of paradise, our inheritance kept for us in heaven by God himself. Therefore, love is not a luxury for good times. But love for Christians is a reflection to us and to the world in these present moments, thank you, in these present moments of disorientation, of suffering, that we're not our own but that we are loved and held and sustained by a loving Father who sent His Son for us, whose Spirit marks and affirms for us that love. The call to love in exile is not easy. We're not doing it alone. The gospel that is good news, that our sins are forgiven, is the good news that points us to how God makes us those that can love one another. The gospel is hope that now, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of disorientation, in the sense of homelessness and struggle, that we can love one another now. Not through what is at work in our own strength, in our own knowledge, in our own experience, but what is available to us in the good news of what Jesus has done. And we see how God enables us through the gospel to love one another, where we learn to love one another within the church so that we can then love our neighbors and our enemies as well. And the first thing that we see is that we are sanctified for love. (coughs) The passage opens with a statement of our status in Christ. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Our souls are purified. When we obey the truth, 
which is to receive the truth of the gospel that Jesus is Lord and Savior, that results in our souls being purified. Not through our own work, but we receive the truth that Jesus' blood, his sacrifice, makes our souls pure and acceptable to God. We are sanctified. We are made holy. But that holiness is not the end point. It's not the arrival. The gospel is good news of justification. We're declared righteous because of what Christ has done. It's the good news of sanctification, being made holy. But we are made holy so that we can love God and so that we can love one another. The transformative work of the Holy Spirit, what we call regeneration, is described in Ezekiel 36 as him taking out the heart of stone and giving us the heart of flesh. Why is it the heart? Why not the mind? Why not the hands and the feet? Because the thing that God does through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit is transforms our ability to love. To love God and to love our neighbor. For we were meant for love. And the sort of love we were meant for was lost in Eden. God sanctifies us in the gospel so that we can love as we were meant to experience love and offer love. The type of love that we had when God made us, the love we were designed for, but the love that we have lost access to and execution of since the garden. When Adam and Eve eat of the tree and God comes walking in the garden, God says, where are you? And they say, we're hiding. Why are you hiding? Because we're naked. How do you know you're naked? And here's Adam's answer to God in verse 11 of chapter 3 in Genesis. Excuse me, verse 12. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Just a page, probably half a page in your Bibles away. When God makes Eve and brings Eve to Adam, his response is, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This is who I am meant to serve with. This is how I can glorify God through this person that I am called to love. Therefore, man and woman shall leave their father and mother and cleave to one another. They shall become one flesh. Bone of my bone, Flesh of my flesh becomes a scapegoat. Adam throws Eve under the bus. This woman you gave me, God, she ate and gave it to me. It's, it's her fault. We see the seeds of malice. We see the seeds of deceit, hypocrisy, and envy sown and taking root in the first moments after holiness is lost. The loss of holiness means a loss of the capacity to love for which we were meant. Jesus shed his blood for our sins, and the Spirit applies that cleansing blood so that we can love. So that we can reflect the love that God had for us when he made us, the love for which Adam and Eve had for each other before they fell into sin. And therefore, that love is meant to reflect that purity Notice he says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth 
for a sincere brotherly love. Love another earnestly from a pure heart. This isn't pure affection or appreciation or attraction. This is love that is pure and earnest. We can't claim to be a loving community if our love is merely self-interested, if it's a love, if it's a cover for what we want. We don't love in order to get, but as Peter indicates, we love because of what we have received in Christ. And therefore, that love is to be according to his standards. Our confession this morning came in response to our reading of God's instruction, God's law. And what we read from Romans 13 was this, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And verse 9 says, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law, which is the commendation for love, but is also the standard for love. We cannot claim to be loving each other if we are harming one another. We can't claim to be loving one another while deceiving one another, while gossiping each other about each other, by backbiting. Before our fall into sin, law was not necessary because we walked in love. We didn't need to be told not to kill, not to commit adultery, not to lie. But with the loss of innocence, the pollution of our hearts, we needed to be instructed in what love should look like. We needed to be told you can't claim to love while deceiving and breaking your promises. But the law could never produce the love that we're called to. It could only show us when we didn't meet that standard of love. But now we've been made new in Christ. And thus we are able, not by the law, but by what Christ has done, to love as we are meant. And he has given us others to love. He has given us a family to say, these are your people. Not the people who are like you, not the people who like the same things that you like, Your people, your family, are those that I have given to you in the church. Where we learn to love so that we can love the outsider, the enemy as well. We are purified, we are sanctified. The gospel cleanses our hearts so that we can love. Think of it like like a kitchen. And, And most of us like to have a clean kitchen. It doesn't always work out that way, but we like to have a clean kitchen. And if you go into a restaurant, you want to see a clean kitchen, right? You want to have a clean kitchen. But what is the purpose of a clean kitchen? Just to stay clean? No, it's so we can serve good and healthy food. And you wouldn't want to eat food from a kitchen where they don't clean the pots and pans, where the grease trap is never empty. Jesus doesn't come into the world and die for our sins so that we can gather in a holy huddle off to ourselves so that we can say to the world, we're holy and you're not. But the holiness that comes through the righteousness of Christ given to us is so that we can love. So that we can offer something to one another as Christ has enabled us. 
people made pure by the blood of the cross are called to love purely. We can't claim to be loving well when we are loving impurely. When we love people so long as they don't make us look bad or ask too much of us. When we are loving for self-promotion or so that people will love or like us back. To love when it's merely easy. To love with words and plastered smiles while seething over past wrongs and things that we have not confronted or forgiven. While believing that God could love us and change us, but that that other person is too far gone and not worth it. Jesus doesn't purify us from our sins so that we can remain apart, but so that we can draw near in love. He purified our souls so that we could love one another in the way that he has loved us. To give one another a taste of the home that we will one day have in the world to come now in this time and place that is not our home. And until that day, he sustains us in our love. The gospel is good news that we are sanctified to love, but also that we are sustained in love. The purification work of the gospel is often described as new birth. Remember, Nicodemus went to Jesus and asked how to be saved, and Jesus said, you must be born again. This is a common picture in Scripture. Here, in verses 23 and 25, Peter uses that language of new birth. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that we preached to you. Nicodemus was thinking about uh, what it was for a mom to give birth to a child when he heard the language of new birth. But here, Peter uses a botanical image, the image of a seed. Christ is not just the good shepherd. Christ is the eternal gardener. In our sins, we were bound to the life of grass and flowers to be short-lived. Sin brought death. And so being of the flesh, as sinful descendants of Adam and Eve, our lives necessarily end in death after a short life. We become momentary like the grass and the flower. But by faith in Jesus, we are cut from that grass. We are cut from that flower. And we are grafted in, apart from the planting the seed of the flesh, we are grafted into the plant of the eternal word. The seed of God's word is eternal. It is imperishable. That is, it is unable to die. We are grafted into that plant stock and share in the eternal life and fruitfulness that comes from the word of God. Because we are born again of the word, the good news that Jesus died for our sins, we are no longer destined to death, but to live. Romans 5, 17 says it this way, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, that is, since we are of flesh, we are destined to live shortly and die and pass away like the flower and the grass, much more so, 
will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. The good news was proclaimed that Jesus is the Messiah. The good news is that Jesus died for your sins and rose again from the grave and reigns in heaven with God. The good news is that if you are in Christ, according to faith in that word, you are planted according to a seed that is eternal. Now, why does that matter for love? When we are but a brief flash on this earth, or tempted to believe that this earthly life is all that there is, then love begins to be, get, to be evaluated through the lens of utility. I just have a few years. What will help me have the best years, the most fruitful years, the happiest years, or, or the most amount of years that I can? And frankly, when you evaluate biblical gospel love through that lens, it doesn't seem that attractive. Because the love that Jesus tells us of, the love that Jesus calls us to, is meek and gentle. It turns the other cheek. It goes the extra mile with our oppressor. It's self-sacrificial. It loves our enemies, not just our friends. It is the loving of those that don't love us back, the continual offering of forgiveness, the feeding of the poor, the visitation of widows and orphans. That kind of love is pretty low on the utility scale. That love often doesn't do much to prolong our life or make us richer. And especially when we're facing hardship, when we have little, when we are fearful, when we are in danger, then that type of love doesn't tend to make much sense. Then we tend to believe in the survival of the fittest. The law of tooth and nail seems to make more sense. Frankly, this is why the claim that love is an evolutionary trait for survival doesn't seem to make much sense. That yes, you know, maybe our genetic material passes better through a community that loves and cares for each other. But that's not the love of the gospel, is just to care for those who can promote your genetic future. Not just to love those like you, but Jesus calls us to love our enemy who wants to put us to death. To love the Romans who were the oppressors of the Jews. We use that phrase, it was like the Wild West, to speak of lawlessness. Because on the frontier... When you're in a distant country, when you're on your own, we tend to revert to lawlessness and taking care of ourselves. That's why our Wild West TV shows and movies are all about uh, you know, the law of the gun and who is the best uh, sharpshooter. We tend towards lawlessness and lovelessness on the edge of survival. But despite the appearances... Those who have heard and received in faith the word of the gospel have been grafted into the eternal life of Christ. That though our life on this earth might be temporary and short, that we have been grafted into the eternal life of Christ through the eternal word because Jesus is the eternal word of God. And therefore, what we expend in love is returned to us. That is why we can expend in love rather than suspend love for the sake of self-preservation. 
We don't see others as competition for scarce resources, but as brothers and sisters of underneath the eternal king. And we can bear the fruit of love. We can give away love. We can die to ourselves over and over again because we have an eternal rootstock in the gospel which draws from the nourishment and sustenance of the eternal God. The way of the flesh and the temptation and trial may say, love when it serves you. Love those who love you. But the word tells us that we love our brothers and sisters, those that hurt us, those that let us down, those that can't return our generosity because the source of that love is not limited to the life of fading flowers and grass. But that love is nourished by the eternal life of God himself. And so as those who have received that word, who have been purified to love as we were made to do, we are sustained in the eternal truth to love. And we're also shown how to love. Because the gospel opens up the capacity to love one another because we are responding to the love that we have received in Christ. The gospel is good news for love because we love in response to the love that we have received. Through the gospel, we are able to love one another purely, earnestly, with brotherly affection because this is how Jesus loved you and loved me. Peter moves from a botanical image to a picture of an infant child in verse 2. Like newborn infants long, or some translations crave, the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the second commandment in the passage behind the commandment, to love one another. But it is reflective of that first call to love. He instructs us that we are to crave spiritual milk like infants. What's a newborn infant like? They're dependent. A newborn child is dependent on their mother's milk or the formula provided to mimic the nourishment that is available for that milk. And because they're so vulnerable, because they're growing so rapidly, it's not just an occasional thing, but it is a continual process of returning to be fed. That while we as adults may go hour upon hour without food, and we may be able to get food for ourselves, the newborn child is dependent and is demanding for immediate gratification in that nourishment of that milk. Paul writes about spiritual milk and in infancy to talk, deal with immaturity. But Peter is using more so the image that Christ used. When Jesus says in Matthew 18, 3, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. In one sense, this is a reflection of the last point, that our life of love is sustained by God but also that the craving comes from exposure, from tasting the goodness of the Lord. Our capacity to love is not just sustained in the truth of the gospel, but because of what the gospel points to, what the gospel shows us, the love of God in Jesus. 
the passage ends with this statement, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Peter's saying we won't yearn for that sustaining truth. We won't desire that spiritual nourishment unless we have tasted of it. There's a difference between seeing a dish on a, on a cooking show and saying, I want to try to make that dish. It looks like it tastes really good. I think I'd like that. I'm going to try to make it. Versus longing for a taste of home. For mom's cookies or dad's pancakes or whatever it is that you have already tasted. And you want more of that. And it was so good, you want others to say, oh, you haven't lived until you tried my mom's or until you tried my dad's or grandma's spaghetti, whoever. The life of love that Peter is calling the churches in exile, the life of love that God is calling us to this morning through his word is a reflection of tasting the goodness of the Lord in Christ. We put away malice. We put away deceit and hypocrisy, envy and slander, because after tasting of the goodness of God, those things taste bitter and ugly in our mouth. When we have that taste in our mouth, we want to get it out. How do we get it out? We go to something that tastes good, something that tastes pure, that tastes right. We go back to the pure spiritual milk of Jesus. When we have tasted, when we have seen the love of Jesus, we will want it more and more, like infants who can't go but a few hours without the nourishment they need. We will come back to Jesus over and over again. We're not tasting of Jesus to try to duplicate the dish, because Jesus isn't just an example of love, but because we can't love without his love. 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. It's not just our model of love. It's not just the cooking show demonstration. We have the nourishment to love because his love has been given to us. When we try to love and fail, when bitterness creeps in, when we love someone who has failed us, when we are tempted to talk about people behind their backs, we come to Jesus who loved us enough to die for our sins. Our love is not what sustains us, brothers and sisters. My love for you is not good enough. Your love for me is not good enough. Our obedience, our love is not what assures us. Rather, our love is a response to the love of God seen in Jesus who gave his life for those that could not love without his love. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. That's what Psalm 34, 8 says. And that's not just a one-time invitation. That is a day-by-day, moment-by-moment invitation to crave the spiritual, pure milk of the good news of the love of Christ for you. We demonstrate that by coming frequently to the Lord's Supper. Not just saying, I believe that Jesus died for me, that he shed his blood and his body was broken for me, but we taste and see the goodness of that over and over and over again. 
so that the love of Christ for us would be so real, so nourishing, that we would love one another as a response. The more you taste of the goodness of the Lord in Christ, the more you will yearn for him, and the more sustenance in him you will find to love others as you have received it from him. I mentioned earlier that one of the books I recently read over study leave was on getting out of bed. It's not just about getting out of bed, but it's an image for what is the worthwhileness of life when we're suffering. Why get out of bed? Why keep living? Why keep making meals and going to work when our bodies hurt, when we're missing loved ones, when we're struggling with mental illness? And one of the reasons I appreciate this book so well is he doesn't sugarcoat it. In fact, he exposes the lie that we should just be able to get over it, just as Peter confronts the reality that these men and women, these fellow Christians, they're in exile. They are scattered. They are persecuted. He writes, there's a kind of unspoken conspiracy to ignore how difficult life is or to reframe it as something romantic, a heroic challenge we overcome on our way to the good life. And that's so dispiriting when we believe that conspiracy because the struggle continues. And we might be tempted to go to the old ways, to the self-protection, to the self-preservation, to use malice and slander and envy as a means to protect ourselves when we're hurting and are struggling. But even as Alan Noble writes with great understanding and compassion, saying that our life is worth living because when we live, we are a testimony to the goodness of God. He calls us to see that our life is also a testimony of the goodness of God to one another. He goes on to say, there may be times when you have to ask for grace, for a temporary suspension of your normal responsibilities so that you can collect yourself and get some measure of healing. That's healthy and a way to love others by caring for yourself. But if you wait until you are in a good place mentally before you accept your responsibilities, you may never act. If we wait until we're no longer in exile, until we're home, until there is no suffering, until there is persecution to act, we may never act. He says it's never a good time to sacrifice for others, but it's always the right time to sacrifice for others. It's very often not a good time to love one another. But because the gospel, because Jesus has purified you from your sins, has rooted you in the eternal truth which sustains you, and he has loved you, we can love one another earnestly and with hearts purified by the truth. Would we do so? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you don't send us into the wilderness to love without knowing what love is, without strength to love, without an experience of love, but you have shown us love in yourself. The word testifies to that love so that when we feel empty and afraid, we know that we are tied into your eternal love and we know that we have a purpose. We're not waiting for heaven, but you have purified us now so that we can love in your name. Help us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.